This is a Triple J podcast. Could you have a universe under your fingernail? What is antimatter? And how much do we have yet to discover in the ocean? We explore all of this and more in this episode of Science with Dr. Carl, taking on your science questions. I'm Lucy. Let's get into it. Dr. Carl, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good and I'm also feeling annoyed uh, at, at people taking away things that I thought I owned. What's What's the deal with this? Okay, suppose you go to the shop, you go down there, you've got your couple of bucks, you buy a bottle of milk, it's yours, right? You can take it home, you can drink it, you don't have to get permission to use it? Yeah. Right, okay. There's one car out where you buy the car and it comes with a, seater, a, a, a heater for the seat. Mm-hmm. You want to activate it, you've got to pay $18 a month. That's crazy. One big company, uh, electric vehicle company, has now said that after you've had the car for eight years, they're going to switch off the navigation, the voice commands and other things like that. Certain big tech companies, if you don't buy the exact accessory that they want you to buy, if you buy a third market one, they'll reduce the performance of your machine. <gasps> You thought you paid for it. Um, uh, There's a TV company that can brick your TV. They say it's just to um, make sure that, uh, for example, if somebody steals it, they can do that, uh, protect you. In the case of my computer, uh, it can be uh, turned into a brick by the company. Uh, There's one company that sells ink for your printer at home and they've got a thing called uh, Instant Ink or something like that. You you just pay money and every time it reports back that you're low on ink, they'll send you some ink for free. Not for free, but they'll send you some ink. But if you stop subscribing, even though your printer is full of ink, it can't print anymore. So you buy these things, and, and a famous one was a few years ago in 2009 when one of the big book companies got rid of all of the copies of George Orwell's 1984, right? So suddenly they all just vanished. You paid for it and it had gone. Now, what do you mean, like as an audio book yeah, or like a an audio, or something? Yeah, it was a, a read book on your little hand device thing. Wow. And they got rid of it. And you, you've heard about Roald Dahl mm-hmm. and how he said some things that today are not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And what they've done is uh, they've got rid of all of the original versions where he said things that were mean back then but now are considered absolutely beyond the pale. Mm. And you can't get the original ones anymore. Wow. So we're losing our history. And then the same thing's happening with phone. Um, the, a car company in America has put in a patent a few years ago where if you miss a payment on your car, the car will start itself up and drive back to their uh, dealership. Oh, that's a lie. Um, here it is. <laughs> oh. There, I'll show, I'll show repossess you. themselves. Yeah, they'll repossess themselves. So, but on the other hand, at this stage, you can still buy your milk and you own it. You pay out the money, it's your milk. Mm. Okay. It's interesting, yeah, the way that you can own a device but you still have to subscribe to the features. And there were conversations around that with um, iTunes and how much ownership you have over your library, even though you have bought the songs, you've purchased the songs, how much ownership do you really have over that collection of songs when they only exist digitally? You don't have the physical copies. So it's interesting that these conversations are still happening, but also that someone has to maybe subscribe to get their seat heated. Yeah, Lucky if you can afford a seat heater. Yeah, no, no, okay. <laughs>
Okay, now that I've got that off my chest to the audience. I know, the robots Sorry. are taking over, Dr. Carl. Well, we're getting people's questions. Okay. 0439 If you've got something that you want to send in, let us know. Dr. Carl, what's something that you have learnt this week, aside from the fact that maybe we don't own everything we want to? Um, the fact that uh, daytime drinking is worse than nighttime drinking and we still don't know why. I could have told you that for free. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what happened is that we have these anecdotal things and there is zero uh, numbers of proper, robust clinical trials looking at it. Uh, one thing that they think is going on, and this is all hypothetical because they haven't done the studies. Well, it's going to be hard to do studies where you say, mate, I want you to start drinking now about 9 o'clock in the morning and keep on going. <laughs> yeah. okay, right, right. So at night, it's, uh, there's a definite finish, which is usually midnight when you feel tired. Mm-hmm. You might be in a different mood and keep on going. But in general, you feel that there's an end to it at night. But if you start at 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning, by the time you've reached sunset, there's still a whole evening to go. So mm. it's open-ended. Um, another factor is that if you're at night, there's sort of like a social thing. Let's have a bit of something to eat. It'll reduce the amount of alcohol in your bloodstream. But if you're starting at an odd time, you could end up with um, no food and that could make things worse. And then there's a third factor of a bit of dehydration going on as well. But unfortunately, there's no robust studies. It's all mm. anecdotal. Uh, and I think from you, you're thinking from your personal experience with other people around you that it, it might exist, maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> but, the, but the plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data. You've got to, and you know, that's the whole, I feel like with day drinking, there's so much more maintenance involved, you know what I mean? And, you know, you get to sundown or it's, it's, it's one of those things as well. Sometimes you'll have a day drink and then you'll go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. Because you just That's so, so sensible. Isn't that cute? Your, your quality of sleep is not as good from drinking, but we won't even talk about that. To the audience. Nick in Burpengary, is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, great. Nick, you got a question about batteries. What's going on? Yeah, would a battery weigh more when it's fully charged as opposed to when it's flat? Yes. Um, and a cup of coffee weighs more when it's hot. So imagine you've got a cup of coffee and you seal it so none of the molecules can evaporate off and then you chuck it in the microwave, it should get hotter. Now, somebody gave me a figure with regard to the battery and if there's a real physicist out there, which I'm not, can you please check it for me? Mm. What they said was that a 65 kilowatt hour battery, 65 kilowatt hour battery, That'll run an American house for about two days, my house for about seven or eight days, an apartment for about a, uh, a month roughly if you're fairly economical. And 65 kilowatt hour battery, you know, 500 kilometres or 400, it should weigh, somebody said, two micrograms heavier. Can somebody do the numbers and let us know? So you've got to convert it into joules and then do the Einstein equals MC squared thing. But the point is, um, Nick, that if you're putting more energy into it, just think of energy and mass as being the same thing. So energy is mass that's been liberated and allowed to run free through the universe, whereas mass is just energy that's been coagulated into one spot in front of you. They're the same thing. So so look, hang in there, Nick, and we'll, we'll try and get a number for you. Okay? Yes, we does, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Nick. Thank you. We've got Mark in WA. Dr. Mark, it's cold and flu season. What is your question? Thank you. Uh, I'm just curious about uh, cold and flu tablets. Now, I'm, I'm someone that doesn't take tablets at all pretty much when I'm sick, but I'm curious uh, to know if I start taking them when I get sick, the more I take, does my body become used to it and lose its effect over time? 
Well, with regard to the cold and flu, they're both caused by a set of viruses. The cold is caused either by rhinoviruses or mild coronaviruses. And Mm -hmm. then you have um, the flu caused by the flu virus. The flu virus tends to be nastier in that it tends to affect your joints. And most of the coronaviruses are caused just the common cold. They just come and go. All that they do is treat the symptoms. So if you've got pain and you're having a bit of paracetamol or a bit of aspirin, they will reduce the inflammation. The inflammation is a local thing that it comes and can be cranked down by the anti-inflammatory drugs. So they will help you get through it uh, a bit faster. But overall, if you've got a cold and you see a doctor, it'll get better in a week. And if you don't see a doctor, it'll take seven days. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <clears throat> but, but you don't get used to the medications. The medications will work in the short term and, and make your life better. And if you can be without pain, that's a good thing. Okay, beautiful. Thank Thanks, you very Mark. much. We've got Ken right here, Dr. Ken. Dr. Ken, Ken, welcome. you've got a question yeah. about space. Yes, I have. I've been trying to get on for the last 15 years, and this question is really annoying me. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Space is, is – there's no end to space, uh, outer space. Right. As far as – like uh, – it, It's infinite. So if the, yeah, yeah. So if there's infinite, like, space as in bigness, should there be the other way around? Should there be infinite smallness? Ah, okay. Um, in your spare time, uh, look up yep. um, Planck Limit, P-L-A-N-C-K. Now, yeah. it's like a normal Planck, but with a letter C in, added in just before the end. And yep. Planck was a physicist in the early 1900s who was incredibly straight and didn't like all this fancy new physics that was coming through with invisible stuff you couldn't see, like radioactivity and stuff. And he was a very rigorous physicist who just followed the, the number and followed the data and followed the equations. And he was um, he, he, he didn't like it much, but he ended up accidentally helping invent quantum mechanics. And he came up with the concept of a, a, a Planck limit, which is what you're thinking about down at the small scale. So the yeah. smallest distance that can possibly exist, I think he said was around 10 to the minus 34 or 35 um, metres. So you write down zero and then a decimal point and then you write down 34 zeros and then a one and then that is the – something like that is the Planck limit for size but we've never proved it but we've hypothesised it. And there's also a Planck limit for time and I think it's roughly the same 10 to the minus 30 seconds. So uh, down at the small scale, it is possible that things get bumpy and you're thinking, oh, my God, will we ever get there? Well, in my father's lifetime, he went from we from humans not being able to go to the moon to – from humans not being able to fly mm. to humans being able to get to the moon and back wow. in one human lifetime. And that's a, yeah. and the progress we're seeing today is on a par with that, if not faster. So if there's some four-year-old kids listening, <laughs> who, knows? <laughs> who knows what you'll be winning Nobel Prizes for. So the answer to your question there, Dr. Ken, is yes, yep. we do think that the universe is bumpy, but we haven't proved it yet, but we think so. So what I'm, you're saying – is that there could be a universe under my fingernail. 
Um, it's possible, but we haven't got the mathematics for it. So you start off with physicists thinking, what if, and they write down a whole bunch of numbers on a bit of paper, and then eventually you get some experimental physicists coming along and proving it. And there was a famous case of an experimental physicist winning the Nobel Prize, which is about as high as you can get, and saying, well, thank you, King of Sweden, for the gold medal, and thank you. Now, if I have neglected to thank any theoretical physicists for their help, It's not because I've forgotten, it's because I hate them. Because it's taken me 10 years to do this experiment and yet the theoretical physicist who came up with the idea came up with it in 15 minutes and then they're onto another thing and another thing and each time they come up with a new idea, I've got 10 years working ahead of me so we hate them. So there's this divide between the theoretical physicist and the and the experimental physicist. They're already on to the next thing. Goodness. Short attention span fueled by coffee. Oh. We've got Jake in Wollongong here. Now, Jake, you got a question about Wim Hof. Do you want to quickly explain what that is before we jump into your question? Yeah, sure. So I was just wondering how a human body um, is able to maintain a constant like temperature. For instance, say they chucked this Wim Hof ice man in, in, a, in a bucket of ice and, and attached him to all the machines and stuff and... And for about two hours, he was able to keep his core temperature at the same, which was about 37, 38 degrees Celsius. And it was just really unusual to see a human that could kind of uh, do that, do that kind of situation. I was wondering what, what, you have heard, if anything, about him, and is, is he just an alien? <laughs> ah, okay, so let me get this straight. They chucked him in water which had ice floating in it? Uh, no, so it was just, it was actual, just a, a whole. Um, a clear container about six foot high and they chucked him in and they poured ice around him and they um, attached his, uh, like a, what are those machines that watch the neurons in your brain and um, all that sort of stuff. And they just sat there and did, did the testing on him while he, while he was um, in the ice for two hours. Was there water as well? Uh, no. Mm. Oh, so because the ice would have melted and because if he was in water, then there'd be mm. massive flow of heat into the water, which is much greater than the massive than the flow of heat into the air. So you can be in air at 15 degrees C, no worries. You can be in water at 15 degrees C, and the flow of the heat is like hundreds of times greater. So if you're very lucky, you can have the cold air around you at zero degrees C, little points of ice touching you here and there, but no real massive flow like you've got the water at zero degrees C. They didn't have any water in there, did they? No, but he does the whole ice bath thing as well. Um, and, you know, like the whole... But have like, they measured the, the temperature? And... Have they measured him being able to sit in ice-cold water and still maintain an internal temperature of 37 degrees C? Yes. Okay. So they did, uh, and the, I think the water was 3.8 degrees or something that's, like that's that. That's terrific. Okay, great. Okay, now, the way you manufacture heat is from things called mitochondria. So what happened... Were about uh, life began four, 3.8 billion years ago. Around 3 billion years ago, photosynthesis got invented and oxygen mm-hmm. started being pumped into the atmosphere. Everybody who was around was getting killed by all the creatures, single cell creatures, were being killed by the oxygen. The actual crisis happened about 2.2 billion years ago when pretty well all of the previous generation of creatures then died and either you lived, you either accepted oxygen or you died out. And mitochondria were bacteria that jumped inside the cells that would become us. 
mitochondria, M-I-T-O-C-H-O-N-D-R-I-A, and they turn sugar directly into energy and they generate heat. They generate heat. They do, and so he must have something to do with his mitochondria. Now, there's two ways you can generate heat with your body. Uh, either you've got something extra going on with your mitochondria or you've got brown fat. Brown fat is supposedly involved, that's my theory, with spontaneous human combustion, and that's how babies keep warm. A baby cannot shiver for the first month. They don't have enough wiring uh, in control of their muscles. So what they do right. have is huge amounts of brown fat, and the brown fat turns energy direct – sorry, it, it turns um, uh, glucose or liberated glucose in your bloodstream, or you can break down your ketones, it doesn't matter. It turns molecules directly into heat without going through the mechanical shivering. So almost certainly there's a paper where they've done – biopsies on the muscle and you can do that sort of stuff and also they would have scanned him for brown fat i haven't followed this person i i mean i know him, but i haven't actually read the proper papers because i've been lazy mm. but almost mm. certainly he's got some sort of mutation that the rest of us don't have as examples of mutations the ice age finished about eighteen thousand years ago and about five ten thousand years ago humans began moving to high altitudes the Himalayas, and they've got one particular adaptation where they make nitric oxide and that opens up the blood vessels so they get more red blood vessels per second passing through any part of their body. In the Andes, they did a different adaptation where they had more blood cells but they didn't get sludging. So you're saying that it might not necessarily be him doing the Wim Hof method that means he's able to do this. It, I haven't read on it. Okay. But, but I need to know exactly what the muscle, so the, the analyses of his body have done. Uh, he, he's definitely weird. So with, with um, uh, what do you call it, uh, going hypothermic, after a couple of minutes, uh, your temperature might have dropped down to 35 degrees or 34. And I'll say, look, Ken, uh, Mark, grab my hand and I'll pull you out of the water and you can see me, but your brain won't respond and you'll drown. Mm. So he manages to avoid that. He doesn't go hypothermic, I think, from what you're saying, and I need to know more about him. But being and he alien, does have... Almost certainly not. Yeah. As you said, he does have a build-up of... of um, the, the uh, brown fat, brown fat oh, as you're saying, yeah. Yeah, the brown fat thing was really weird because we acknowledged for a long time that babies had it but adults didn't and there was a conference in America where a hormone person was meeting up with their mate who was an x-ray person and they went to this and so they dropped in, they both went to the x-ray meeting and in the x-ray meeting they said, oh, here we got this and here we got that oh, and there's some brown fat there and afterwards the endocrinologist, the hormone person said, Mate, that's just rubbish. There's no brown fat in adult humans. And the x-ray person said, we've been seeing it for the last 20 years, but you won't listen to us. And so we only you know, acknowledged that it happened about 20 years ago. And since then, we've been finding out more about it. Spontaneous human combustion, we'll leave it to another time. Another time. We've got Paul in Wollongong Paul. here. Paul, we've all done this at the doctor. What's your question? Uh, I'm just wondering when or how the doctor knows when to stop inflating the cuff. Ah. He's taking the blood pressure. Yeah. So um, what they do is they put the cuff around your arm and they then put a stethoscope on an artery that's in your elbow called the ante, meaning in front of, cubital, meaning elbow. I, I think that means elbow, artery. So you're listening to this artery. And when the blood is flowing through normally, you're not going to hear a thing. And when the blood is not flowing at all, you're not going to hear a thing. But there's a transition 
where you're cramping the artery. So assume that this person's blood pressure is 120 on 80, a lovely number to have. So you just go crank, 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 and you bring it up to 150 millimetres of mercury. I apologise for the dumb unit. At least it's not cubic furlongs per square second or something. Okay? So you crank it and, and, and then you start listening. You can, you can see the little mercury thing going bubble, bubble. You take up to 150 and it's not bumping anymore and then you put your stethoscope and then you listen to that artery. And then when you reach about 121, you hear nothing. And at around 120, you just begin to hear a sort of... You're just hearing a, a really sort of short, truncated sound with a little tiny jet of blood. Instead of, say, three or four millimetres in diameter, maybe half a millimetre. It's just so squeezing you're squashing through. the artery. Yeah, you're squashing the artery and you're hearing this turbulence. And the turbulence sort of gets louder. And finally at 80, it vanishes. So whenever you're hearing that turbulence, it begins at 120, it finishes at 80. Therefore, the blood pressure of that person is 120 on 80. The trouble with mercury is that if it leaks out of the rubber after about 20 or 30 years, it's toxic, blah, blah, blah. And so now you've got the machines and everybody uses the new forms of machines that have got a computer hooked up to a microphone that does the listening for you. Ah, oh, I see. Okay, thanks very much for that. Thank thanks, Paul. we got Josh in Rosebud. Josh, what's your question? All right, doctors. So I've recently been prescribed to use medical marijuana. From past injuries and all that, but I've noticed when I use it of a night time, as soon as I have it within maybe one to two minutes, my eyes start going bright red and I start developing dark bags under my eyes. I'm just wondering why that is. Um, so there are many ingredients in marijuana, and you're thinking, why does marijuana, which is made of plant, work on me because I'm made of meat? And the answer is a coincidence that about 500 million years ago, we have uh, evidence that a worm called Chenorhabditis something or other, uh, it had developed marijuana receptors and we think it was related to pleasure. So uh, if you eat you will live longer than if you don't eat. And the marijuana receptors were relating to feeling good. So each time you eat, the marijuana receptors would find you think, hey, I like eating. I'll eat some more tomorrow. And then that way you would survive and have babies, blah, blah, blah. So that's why marijuana works on humans because we make our own natural marijuana. But when you take more marijuana than your body makes, uh, the chemical delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol has a known effect of what they call vaso dilation, vaso, blood vessel, dilation to make bigger. And so in many cases on the whites of your eyes, the blood vessels, which are really small, suddenly open up. And they're just at that size where they're too small to see. To see. And if they double or triple inside size, suddenly you can see these little red streaks across the eyes. Also, uh, they redu- cannabis reduces tear production. So your eyes are drier. And so there's a little tiny, well, it's not quite rubbing, but you know, you're sort of getting more friction than you normally would. Normally the, mm. the tear film is really good. And in, uh, with the bags, we don't fully understand why you get bags under the eyes, but it is related to the different quality of sleep that you get. In some cases, uh, worse. And so the combination means you get the bags under the eyes, which we don't fully understand why. And we do understand why you get the red eyes because of the vasodilation. Is it, uh. is it working for you? Is it helping relieve the pain? It or, does. Yeah, yes. So I, I broke my ankle and my neck playing rugby league a few years back. Wow. Yeah. So I had my neck fused and my ankle has a plate in it 
and just every night I just constantly ache and ache and ache and I, I wouldn't be able to get to sleep straight away. Oh, so yeah, so wow. since having since being prescribed with this medicine at, at I've never slept so good. It's it dulls the pain and I sleep. But with with the bags under my eyes, it's not so much when I wake up, like the next day. It goes in conjunction with the red eyes. So as soon as my wow. eyes go red, I develop these dark bags under my eyes. Mm. And when the medicine starts to wear off, the bags go away with the red eyes. You are you have got really good scientific observation to see what's going on. So Josh, I completely missed that. Thank you so much for pointing that out. You have now given me homework where I have to go and talk to my dermatologist mates and say, okay, you're in charge of skin. Tell me how come Josh has bags that come and then go. And it is so good that you've got something that will relieve your sleep. Unfortunately, it can interfere with your ability to drive a car legally in the way that, in, in a sense that the cannabis can be at a level that does not act, uh, be active psychoactively the next day. But because it's dissolved in fat, a blood test will show that you've got levels of cannabis, mm. but, but it's not psychoactively interfering with your ability to drive. You're just as safe as anybody else. But the current legislation and tests leave you at a bit of a disadvantage at the moment. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that, that, that's understandable. Right here in the midst of science with Dr. Carl, we've got Chris. Now, Dr. Chris, you've been seeing these videos on TikTok. I'm not familiar with these. Can you let us know what the trend is right now? So there's so there's these videos on TikTok where it's basically uh, simulated videos of these cars jumping over these ramps, and they show the different effects um, gravity from different planets has on the cars. And I'm just wondering how accurate they are. Ah, that depends on how um, well they've done their physics, which is remarkably simple. Newton, in the 1666 time period, when we had the Great Fire of London and also the plague coming through, he did a lot of the work then, and it's very simple physics. So how accurate they are depends on how accurate the person was trying to do their work. Like, I was doing a school Q&A the other day, uh, yesterday, and the student said, hey, Carl, how come the... Earth is spiralling towards the sun. And I said, that's not my recollection of it. So I went looking live on air. I said, where did you get this from? He said, oh, I just read it on the internet. <laughs> it means it's like that's equivalent to saying I found a bit of paper on the ground and there was some words scribbled on it. So whatever they said, I'd believe, right? Mm. So I went looking for a really good source, which was Ethan Siegel, who writes for Forbes magazine. He's an astrophysicist. And the situation is that the sun is losing four million tonnes of mass every second and it's getting lighter, therefore its gravitational suck is getting less. That's a technical term, gravitational suck. So the Earth is moving away from the sun at one and a half centimetres every year. So that was one thing that was very easy to work out. In the same way, the equations are just the equations of parabolic motion. They're ridiculously easy to get out, to get right. Do, do they show that on a heavier planet, the car just sort of goes, yeah, very short journey and then just squash? And then on a lighter place like the moon, it might travel five, six times further. Are they showing that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. So like on, on the moon, for instance, it, it shows the car going like, like way further than it would on Earth. Earth. The gravitational field on the moon is six times weaker, one-sixth. So I'm guessing, I can't remember my equations, whether it's a linear or square, but I'm guessing it would be maybe two to six times further. Is, are they showing that? 
Yeah, yeah. And um, when when they show um, sun gravity, which, which is my personal favourite, um, like the car comes off the ramp and then you boom straight down. Yeah, the, the sun's gravity is about twenty two times more. Look, so whether the individual videos are accurate, I don't know, but you can get a real physicist to do it. And when the real physicists look at the video of the vehicles on the moon. The vehicles on the moon, as they travelled around with the astronauts back in the 1960s, 70s, they threw up dust and the speed at which the dust falls down fits in exactly with Newton's equations of motion and what we know about the moon. Yet another proof we went to the moon. Wow. So specifically don't know, but they, it should be easy to get right. Can some real physicists get in there and let us know? If some real physicists do, we, we're going to send you a prize. Come on, real physicists. Actually, look at those videos. Where do we find those videos from, um, yeah. Dr. Chris? Are there any specific ones or something we can search? On TikTok? Um, oh, they're on, they're on um, all different accounts. You just search, um, like, car gravity um, okay. or... or Okay. Yeah, something okay. like that. Okay, so real physicist, there's a prize in it for you. Go searching. We've got James from South Dowra. James, what's your question? Oh, hey, guys. Um, I was just reading an article on the ABC the other day about antimatter and how it costs, like, quadrillions of dollars for a single gram. And I was just sort of curious, A, like, what antimatter is or does, and then, B, like, who's got quadrillions of dollars that they're investing in this to, to see that happen? Ah, so uh, antimatter is manufactured in virtually every hospital you walk past. Um, they've got a scanner, they've got an MRI scanner, a magnetic resonance imaging, and they've got a CAT scanner, computed tomography, and they've also got a PET scanner, P-E-T, mm. and P stands for positron, which is antimatter. So in every major hospital you walk past, the chances are that at some moment a person is being sprayed with antimatter or is, is involved in an antimatter scan. So what is antimatter? Uh, antimatter is regular atoms with the charges reversed. So you think back to school and a model of an atom looking like a mini solar system and in the middle you've got the nucleus, which is positively charged, okay, in antimatter is negative. And then going around, you've got electrons in a regular atom, which are negatively charged. Oh, no, in antimatter, they're positively charged. They're called positrons. And so positrons are used all the time in all the hospitals. They don't cost quadrillions of dollars. The world economy, if every you've got every country in the world put together in a year, their GDPs, Gross domestic products, if you add it up, comes to 85 trillion. 85 trillion. Australia's proportion of that is one and a half trillion. Quadrillions, we haven't got there yet. So we are using antimatter all the time. Uh, it is expensive to make, but on the other hand, most medical things are. But it just came from pure physics. And so you can get diagnosed and hopefully go down a pathway where you get better due to scientists uh, discovering antimatter way back, I think it was back in the 30s or something. I can't remember. Does okay. that help there, Dr. James? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, thanks. Just found it, yeah, super interesting. Oh, and the other thing about antimatter is it's a really good fuel. Instead of having to get into orbit with 3,000 tonnes of liquid hydrogen and oxygen, you could use a few grains of sand of antimatter and that would have as much energy, a few grains of sand mass, as 3,000 tonnes of hydrogen and liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Mm. We are taking your science questions with Dr. Carl. We've got Leslie in Thoreau before we get to a song. Leslie. Leslie, Doctor. what do you want to know? Welcome. Hi, my question is, how can your eyelids be 
relaxed when your eyes are open and also when your eyes are closed. I know. It's tricky and this bothered me for a long time and I got the answer when I did anatomy. So firstly, think of a bicycle wheel with the spokes going out. Okay, there's one set of muscles that are like that. They're radially organised going out from the centre and then there's another set of muscles which are uh, like a circle and when they become active, they close things down. So one set of muscles will pull your eyelid open. They're like the spokes on the bicycle wheel and the other ones are the circular ones and they'll close it down. And so what you do is you just um, relax one set of muscles and make the other ones work at a very low level of activity. And of course, if you want them to be able to put your eyelid at any particular stage, then you have both of them going at fairly close to maximum activity and they're both working hard and you're sort of adjusting it and you can do a fine adjustment. But when you're fully open or fully shut, they're very relaxed. Carl, we just had someone on talking about how these videos have come out where people have kind of predicted the different gravity motions when oh, driving a car. Oh, different... of cars, yeah. Yes, so we've got some clarity. Dan in Melbourne, you said, ain't no physicist, but I'm a gamer. He was talking about Beam NG Drive, a physics-based car simulator game. It has gravity options. So people have taken, I guess, screen records from this video game and have been putting them online. Someone saying the physics engines in the car games today are ridiculously accurate, evidenced by the real race car drivers using them during COVID. It is amazing really? how well they work. So... Ah, I, I didn't even think of the fact that the gamers would have driven the technology to use real physics. Yeah, so it's um, not physicists making the video. So, hey, we'll have to get a physicist to look at these games. And actually just see, and actually check the numbers and the distances. Okay. We've got Thank Teo you. from Blacktown here. Teo? Teo, you've noticed something when using a milk bottle. What's going on? Yeah, good morning, doctors. Uh, Dr. Carl, when I rinse my milk bottle uh, out for the recycling, and sometimes I'll let one sit, and then when I rinse the next bottle out and put it next to it, the the older one seems to be grey in colour. What could that be? Ah. And the longer you let it sit, the greyer the water gets. Yeah. Okay, so firstly, I'd like to rinse the bottles because I went to visit some people in a recycling plant and they said, look, if you just rinse the stuff, uh, it's so much better for us because it doesn't smell so bad. Mm. Okay, it makes their, yeah. And it makes their job easier. And secondly, I get to get some extra milky goodness and so I'll add maybe four centimetres of water to the bottom of the milk bottle and drink it. Oh. Highly diluted yeah. milk, but I, I'm like that... I, just um, have no troubles with lactose. Okay, so what you're looking at here is contamination either chemical or some sort of living creature, a bacteria or a fungus, either married to the milk bottle or the milk or the water. So mm. milk bottle is made of various chemicals and depending on what they are, they may or may not leach into the water. The water itself yeah. is a very high standard here in Australia and I think I mentioned the professor of physics uh, at my University of Sydney saying to me, she said, it's amazing, she's from India, she said, I can stand in the shower and drink the water and I won't die but in India I can't, mm. right? So we've got very clean water but there is still some bacteria and then finally in the uh, milk itself. When it's pasteurised, they don't mean that there's zero bacteria, if there was zero bacteria, you could leave it for a month or a year. If providing it was sealed, it wouldn't go off. There's some bacteria. Why do they leave some bacteria behind? Because if they were going to get rid of all the bacteria, they'd have to heat it up to a state where it wouldn't taste nice anymore. 
And so they just heat up that it'll be okay for about a week or two and the bacterial numbers are so small they will grow in numbers. Uh, but by the time – but you should use the milk up before then. So you've got yourself about a week. So is any of those combinations together? We've got Tim from Newey. Dr. Tim, what's your question? Dr. Tim. Uh, hey, doctors. Um, I'm just wondering how much of the ocean is still undiscovered and um, what kind of life forms do we think we still might discover there? Mostly small ones. Um, there is so much we do not know about the ocean floor. Uh, beginning in the 1960s and 70s, look up SOSUS, S-O-S-U-S on Wikipedia. The Americans and other countries as well put chains of microphones on the ocean floor to listen the Americans to listen for the Russian submarines and vice versa to try and see what's going on, nuclear war, all that sort of stuff. We still have them operating. Um, but just recently I was reading a report of somebody wanting to do some mining on, on the ocean floor in a certain area. And they said, okay, this is the area. Let's look carefully at this area. And they found all sorts of not just bacteria and viruses, but also bigger creatures, maybe a centimetre, three centimetres, four centimetres long, some of them previously unknown. Big stuff you're probably not going to get to see because the big stuff needs smaller stuff to eat. Mm. And so you've got that food pyramid. Uh, mega mouth, probably not, uh, but uh, little things, yes. Terrifying. Hey, we've got Lachlan on the Central Coast. Do you reckon Lachlan. you can answer this one quickly, Carl? Here we go quickly. Lachlan, what have you got? Hey, um, I was just wondering, I do a lot of travelling for work across New South Wales and I've noticed the weather, depending on which side of the Great Dividing Range you're on, is different. How does the Great Dividing Range affect weather? Is it Because it can't be that high. Ah, okay, so Australia is very flat. It's roughly the same size as the continental contiguous USA. In the USA, you've got a big chain of mountains on each side. The air comes along from the ocean carrying water vapour. It rises, it gets colder, the water vapour drops out and falls as rain, and so you've got the centre of America nice and moist with big fat rivers. In Australia, on the West Australian side, we've got nothing. On the right-hand side, we've got something they wrongly call the Great Dividing Range, which should really be called the Average or Mediocre Dividing Range. I've met Germans and uh, other Europeans. They get to the top of the mountain, they, uh, yeah, but uh, Cosy, and they say, this is it. <laughs> it's just rubble, you know. So, so it does affect the weather by the air with water vapour rising and then dropping its vapour, but it's not enough to make the inland parts of Australia non-desert. Enough okay. water doesn't get across. So you're seeing a small change. If we had a bigger dividing range, we'd have a bigger, uh, more, more rain in the middle. There you go. Thanks, Lachlan. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl and thank you so much for your reviews. We do see them over on Apple Podcasts. Someone giving us five stars saying, this is amazing. So good. I'm a teen, not an adult, but I still love it. I've listened to every available episode you've made. I'd love to send in a question, but I'm at school during call times. Hey, feel free to send me a voice memo if you want with your question. If you've got Instagram, at Lucy Smith. Slide into my DMs. Yuval also gave us five stars saying, so well done. Love these. So good to have quick episodes while I cook or drive. I always learn something and have a smile at Lucy and Dr. Carl's interactions. Good stuff, dudes. Oh, it's a pleasure to hang out with you each week. Take a scroll through the podcast feed if you want more Science with Dr. Carl. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill and we'll catch you next week. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. 
Each day, we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.